0: Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, we continue with 10 points to consider when it comes to end times theology or eschatology. Ken, you gave a a very nice introduction and covered five of those points. Give us a bit of a recap and then tell us where we're headed today. Yeah, my real
1: interest, Joe, in eschatology uh, has to relate to apologetics. Um, Many years ago, I worked with Walter Martin at the Christian Research Institute, and one of the groups that I studied was Seventh day Adventism. And I came to recognize that Adventism came out of an eschatological uh, event in the 19th century. William Miller, who was a a great evangelist, a New England Baptist minister, predicted the Lord would come specifically on October 22nd, 1844, when when the day came and the Lord didn't. That birthed all kinds of disappointment, objections. Seventh-day Adventism came out of that. Later, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses was an eschatological the causes of its kind of coming together as an organization were partly eschatological. So one of my interests is that eschatology can go wrong. We can do it improperly. I'm, I'm also interested in the topic of eschatology because I think it's highly divisive and it hurts the unity of Christianity. And I think that's a very important topic. Um, I think there are a lot of non-Christians who think if I became a Christian, what denomination would I belong to? They all seem to be different. So those are some of the areas. Now, let me just give you a little summary of what we talked about last time. I have these 10 points. They do come out of uh, a little book that I wrote in 2013 entitled Christian Endgame, subtitled Careful Thinking About the End Times. And again, I don't argue for a definitive position in that book. I see it more as an opportunity to help Christians kind of think through the differing ideas, the biblical views, uh, the strengths and weaknesses of particular views, uh, such as the millennium. But I also talk about um, what I call uh, mere Christian eschatology, and I'm going to develop that a bit more. But here's a couple of the points we covered earlier. Number one, that irresponsible approaches to eschatology create apologetic problems for the church. Last time we talked about William Miller, we talked about Harold Camping, but there are other uh, evangelical people in the area who have made similar predictions, and they have all been wrong. Number two, excessive speculation and date setting are unbiblical practices. We talked about Matthew 24, 36, where Jesus says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Um, I think that's a pretty straightforward biblical passage that a lot of us seem to forget. Uh, no one knows the day or the hour. Uh, so we, we need to be cautious about that and not fall into the trap of, of being too speculative. A third point I made was that evangelical Christians should study the field uh, when it comes to Christian eschatology because Christendom has been divided over the topic. Um, You know, it it took me quite a while in my Christian experience to realize that uh, Christianity is a worldwide uh, religion. It is a worldwide um, belief system. it ha- there are differing perspectives on certain things. Some of the great Christian thinkers of the past have held differing views. So I, I propose that we should study the field. Uh, many times people are introduced only to premillennialism or only to amillennialism or only to postmillennialism and are not aware of the diversity of views. So that was my third point. My fourth point is that given the debate about eschatology, uh, and because of the challenging nature of understanding the apocalyptic literature like Daniel and, and the book of Revelation, that we I suggest we hold our views tentatively. It doesn't mean we back down, doesn't mean that uh, we don't have confidence, but it means that we recognize that it's a challenging area of Christian study and that there have been uh, very different perspectives held by some very distinguished uh, Christian scholars. And then five, eschatology is one of the most divisive areas within Christian theology, and therefore we have a need to maybe eliminate some of that uh, divisiveness and uh, to treat Christian people with, with charity. And uh, so those are five of the points that uh, we made, and uh, I commend them to people. And uh, in, our ne- in, our, in this program, i like to develop five more points. Terrific. Okay, well, point number six, uh, there is a mere Christian eschatology, a mere Christian eschatology that few people are actually aware of, and thus fail to appreciate. And of course, uh, undoubtedly there, I'm borrowing from C.S. Lewis. Uh, Lewis didn't come up with the term uh, mere Christianity. Uh, He borrowed it from a theologian named Richard Baxter. But Lewis was a great advocate of mere Christianity. Uh, When he wrote the book by the same title, he sent it out to... uh, uh Scholars from four different denominations um, I think they were uh, uh, Methodist, uh, Presbyterian, uh, Roman Catholic and maybe maybe Baptist, and you know said, hey, what do you think about this my presentation of mere or common or creedal Christianity? Well, Lewis advocated that. Now now obviously, uh, when Lewis talked about mere Christianity, he said, you can't live as a mere Christian. You have to make up your mind about things like baptism and uh, things like eschatology and communion. And so there are differences within the Christian traditions about infant baptism or adult baptism. Uh, Christians have discussions and debates about uh whether the Lord is present in a unique way in the Lord's Supper or whether it's merely a memorial. Um, and, and so, you know, you if you hold a Lutheran view, that's very different than, let's say, a Southern Baptist perspective. Well, uh, I think that there is a mere Christian eschatology. That is, all Christians who are conservative in their theology that hold an orthodoxy with a lowercase o or who are Catholic with a lowercase c whether they're all post postmillennial, or premillennial, they hold to a mere Christian eschatology. And they do because of the authority of Scripture and the teaching of Scripture. And here is that five-point mere Christian eschatology. Uh, number one, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, I mentioned in a previous show, that is not only a very straightforward biblical teaching, it is a creedal doctrine. We believe the Lord will come again. Um, his kingdom will have no end. And so that's a that's an essential Christian teaching. Um, it's called the blessed hope, the second coming. Uh, one of the reasons I lean toward an amillennial view and, uh, and hold it tentatively is that, I don't know, it just seems that the second coming is part of the consummation rather than part of the redemptive side of a Christian worldview. We talked about thinking of a Christian worldview with four successive events, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. If uh, if indeed uh, the second coming is the beginning of consummation, then I think uh, the amillennial view makes really good sense. Of course, that question uh, can be debated, but right at the top of a mere Christian eschatology, Point number one, the second coming of Jesus Christ. And it's critically important. He came the first time as the suffering servant. He came in humility. Uh, He came uh, to give his life uh, as a a sacrifice uh, to forgive people's sins. But he will come again in glory. Um, And that will be an event like no other event we have ever seen before. A second part of the mere Christian eschatology is the resurrection of the dead. All of the millennial conservative views, uh, all the conservative eschatological views, pre-mill, post-mill, they all believe in the resurrection of the dead, that one of the things the King Jesus will do at his second coming is to raise the dead. And, uh, you know, I've always, as a boy, Growing up, studying the Second World War, uh, my dad was a combat soldier. I always wished I could have been at the Nuremberg Trials.
0: Mm.
1: Well, imagine being at this time where the dead are raised and it leads to our third point of mere Christian eschatology, the final judgment of humankind. What will that be like? Mm. What 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 will we see? What will we experience? What, what kind of... Uh, extraordinary event will that lead to um i was uh, i like cop shows by the way um as a kid i always liked watching shows relating to detectives and police work and things like that somebody said on the program i don't know if this is true i'll have to ask my friend uh mark perez that most crimes go unsolved hmm. i don't know if that's the case but if it is uh, one of the important things that the Christian worldview says is that there will be a judgment. I, I know I know many non-Christians are put off by the concept of judgment and hell, but what if there's no judgment or hell? What if what if people what if wicked people uh, do things here on the earth and are never held accountable? Well, um, the Bible teaches that God is a just judge. And he will raise the dead of all people, believers and non-believers, and then they will be judged. And if you have no mediator, if you have no savior, you will stand in the judgment. Uh, What that will be like, boy, I don't know. A fourth point of uh, near Christian eschatology is that there will then be the eternal state. We will move into this eternal era, and that will be accompanied with my fifth point, the new creation. Now, whether the new creation will be the the destruction of this universe, and the creation of a brand spanking new one, or whether it will be a renewed heaven and earth, and there are lots of differences there. Um, Good people on all sides of that type of issue, but Joe... Most people don't talk about this mere Christian eschatology. It it seems that a lot of eschatological discussion for evangelicals is very divisive, that we talk about controversial things like the timing of the rapture or the nature of the millennium. Um, But these five seem to get less uh, discussion. I think if, if nothing else, my book Christian Endgame is worth having and reading just mm-hmm. to recognize that mere Christian eschatology. Um, yeah. I kind of uh, wish I would have entitled the book that title, but, you know. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, it's in there. Uh, a question on the, the second one, Resurrection of the Dead. Uh, what exactly happens there? Because somebody might be thinking uh, when when somebody dies, they go before God, but their body goes in the ground. So... Is there a period where uh, they're in heaven, but their body is not there yet? Or how, how should we understand the resurrection of the dead? I think it's fair to
1: say that in Christian theology, Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, that there is a belief in the present state of being embodied. Then there is the intermediate state where upon death, there is a separation of our our body from the soul. Um, and I am i see soul and spirit as being interchangeable terms in scripture. So most Christians hold, I think, to uh, a dichotomy. Um, now there are people who hold to um, uh, conditional immortality who believe that you have no immortal soul and you go to a state of extinction. But I'll save that uh, for, for one of our points a little bit later, but most Christians believe that there is a temporary period called the intermediate state. It is after death, but before the resurrection, before final judgment, before uh, hell and the eternal blessedness of heaven. Uh, And that would be a time where believers are with the Lord. Uh, They're disembodied. They worship, they know, they love, they interact with the Lord and with others, but they don't have their body. And and therefore, that resurrection of the body would be for all people. The the non-believer, the wicked, as they are sometimes referred to biblically, they would also, for a period of time, be held in judgment apart from their body and then would be raised, and then they would face eternal punishment. Of course... I think Joe, one very good thing about talking about eschatology is it reminds us how important redemption is. Uh, it is considering the end time events of judgment, of hell, uh, standing before God, having dig of account for all of your life. I mean, there are sometimes I think back to my life and I think, wow, what a wreck, what a mess. Um, I am in desperate need of God's forgiveness. Well, I think sometimes looking at eschatology reminds us of what the Lord did for us on the cross, that his death uh, took away our sins, that he suffered uh, God's just wrath in our stead, and we have been uh, forgiven. Uh, I also think it motivates us to godly living. Uh, We don't know when the Lord will return. I think we want to be ready. I think we want to be living for the Lord, uh, being devoted and dedicated to him. So I think these eschatological issues are important, but all people will be raised. Now, of course, there are questions about what that will consist of. Our old buddy, Dave Rogstad, used to say, well, what happens if a shark eats my body? Uh, You know, and now it's part of the shark. Where will the body come from? Joe, uh, Dave, of course, was a physicist and asked all those wonderful physics questions. And uh, I have to tell you, I miss him every Tuesday morning. I, I always look over at my door, waiting for him to walk in. Mm. Well, I, I think the answer that I would have from my friend Dave is: I think that the resurrection will be something of a resurrection and new creation. Uh, Jesus's body after. It was crucified at the resurrection. It was both like and unlike his uh, body before. There was what we call continuity and discontinuity. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to that body because uh, as I get a little older, I I, uh, and Dave used to tell me. You know, your, your health problems are nothing a good resurrection body wouldn't solve. So <laughs> that's yeah. kind of where we're at. Uh, what yeah. do you think about, I want to ask you, um, what do you think about that mere Christian eschatology?
0: Well, I like what you're saying. Uh, I, I think uh, if people adopted this stance, this view, uh, and made it a part of their entire approach to eschatology, it could be to lead to more unity. Um, just, you know, I think you let off the, the first uh, podcast with uh, one of the points being that we should learn what the other views are. Uh, I have to admit for, for a good portion of my Christian life, I didn't know that there was another view besides the one I held. And then when I was exposed to the other views, at first I thought they were a little odd. They just sounded different. But then in reading a little bit more, I said, you know what? people have been Christians a long time, have have thought this way. Maybe I, I ought, ought to listen to what they have to say. So <laughs> if, for, if for no other reason uh, uh, than unity, I think it's wise to, to adopt the posture of a mere Christian eschatology.
1: All right. Well, here's point number seven. Uh, Christian eschatology is actually about the future and the past and the present. Um, many Christian authors have used the expression, already not yet, already not yet, meaning that we need to tie together the continuity of Christ's first and second coming. Um, his first coming has already taken place. He has already inaugurated his kingdom. The gospel is is being preached and being taken forth uh, throughout the earth. But his kingdom has not come in its fullness. So there is the not yet. And I think that's why it's important to kind of tie them together. When, Again, when I begin thinking about eschatology and last things, it drives me back to thinking about, wow, how critically important redemption is. Wow, how consequential the fall was. And it brings me back to creation, uh, what will the new creation be in light of the present creation? So I think bringing them together and having a, um, you know, I, I would call myself a systematic theologian. I, I love the, the broad areas of, of Christian theology. And so uh, your eschatology shouldn't just be what you're looking for to happen in the future, it should make you reflect on the past and it should make you recognize how important the present time is. And having lived through uh, something like a pandemic and seeing people who were very healthy uh, become very ill, sometimes deathly ill, uh, with this virus, it, it made you realize, wow, we are mortal creatures, we're fragile, life is short, Uh, It's so painful to lose the people we love. So that seventh point, Christian eschatology should get you to think and pray, and your devotion should be a reflection upon both the future, uh, the past, uh, and the present. Now, number eight is a, a little bit of a different point, but I think a very important one And it gets us back to my issue of eschatology being about eschatology, being about apologetics. So point number eight, there are challenges to the historic Christian view of heaven and hell. Well, let me introduce some of them to you. Uh, There is the position of universal salvation. Now, universal salvation is the idea that all human beings, whether You believe in God and Christ, or whether you don't believe in God in Christ, or whether you're not even aware of God in Christ, um, you're going to be saved. Universalism, Christian universalism. Christian universalism is a little different than pluralism. Religious pluralism says all religions are true, so whatever religion you participate in you will find kind of an ultimate acceptance with God. No, we're talking about Christian universalism. Um, Christian universalism has been held in the past by some very important Christian thinkers. I think it is experiencing a revival today. I've noticed uh, a number of people, uh, both in the evangelical movement, in Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, who hold universalism. And you know, there are things uh, that make it appealing. Uh, It's kind of the ultimate success of Christ's cross, that he would redeem each and every person, whether one believes, disbelieves, or is unaware. Uh, It is believed that Origen, the famous church father, Who uh, lived between, let's say, Irenaeus and Saint Augustine, uh, that Origen held a position of universalism. It is also speculated that maybe the Cappadocian Fathers, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory of Nazianzus, and um, uh, what is his name, the Great One. well, I'll, maybe it'll pop into my mind, um, that some have proposed that maybe the Cappadocian fathers based, who were influenced by origin held to a universalism. But it's controversial because uh, it's also believed that there was a church council that condemned it. Now, my problem with universalism is it sounds interesting and engaging, but I think it contradicts scripture. Uh, I think there are clear places in the words of jesus himself where he says the saved will go to eternal life and the unsaved will go to eternal separation from god eternal punishment Mm -hmm. the word eternal ios is the same for each so the problem i have with universalism is i believe the bible teaches there will be people who will reject christ and they will suffer eternal conscious punishment. So universalism is a challenge. Then you have conditional immortality, which is held by Seventh-day Adventists, and it's held by others. It's essentially the view that we don't have an immortal soul. We're kind of an animated body. And so when we die, we go to a state of extinction. And if you're a believer, uh, you're unconscious or extinct until the resurrection of the body. That's usually tied, by the way, to another challenge called annihilationism. That is the view that uh, non-believers, those who have rejected Christ, uh, they will suffer in hell uh, for a period of time commensurate with their sins. and, And rather than staying there for eternity, they will then be annihilated or obliterated they will no longer exist. Now, again, uh, this is a position that's been held by some. Uh, it's it's a position held by Seventh-day Adventists. It's a position held by Jehovah's Witnesses, but there are so, also evangelicals who have held this view. Um, Ed Fudge was one of the leading advocates of annihilationism. Uh, he and I did a radio debate in New York City um, many, many years ago. Um, Ed Fudge is very popular among uh, those who challenge the eternal conscious punishment, and there are people today. um, uh, There is uh, books and a ministry of people who will question uh, the issue of eternal conscious punishment. So I see it as becoming popular. There have been a number of British evangelicals. Uh, who have been sympathetic to it. So it, it is a, a position that evangelicals are are giving consideration to. We could also talk about purgatory, um, the idea, a Catholic belief, though there are some in the Anglican tradition who hold it. I'm not quite sure what the Orthodox believe about it, but purgatory would be the idea that one's moral transformation is not completed in this life, and therefore there will be a state after death where a person will go through a moral purging uh, to arrive them at a place where they can stand in the presence of God. Um, I think C.S. Lewis held a a view something like that. Uh, Catholics uh, affirm it. Um, My trouble with it is, I think the biblical basis for it is is uh, questionable. Um, so those are some of the challenges that arise. Universalism, conditional immortality, annihilationism, purgatory. Uh, and again, some of those would be related to what I would call heretical sects or non-Christian uh, alternative religions like Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, etc. But some of them would be affirmed by people within uh, Christendom. Uh, Joe, comment or question about those challenges, yeah, about future a question, on,
0: a question on annihilationism. Let's say somebody um, will say to you, uh, God is a loving God. Uh, we can't fathom uh, just how loving he is. Why wouldn't he have something like this in view that is annihilationism? Because a person will sin on this planet for... Let's say an average of seventy-five years. Why should the why should the punishment not be commensurate with that? If there is going to be some type of uh, purging afterward, so why not uh, a comparable period commensurate with the time that they sinned on this uh, planet?
1: Well, I think that there are a lot of people that that makes a lot of sense to. Um, another argument that is sometimes made against eternal conscious punishment is, let's suppose maybe one of your family members rejects Christ. So how are you to enjoy the blessedness of heaven, knowing that one of your loved ones is being punished eternally? So there are these these appeals. Of course, the real question is, is there a solid biblical basis? Uh, For those of us who are evangelical Protestants, we want to say, you know, can you make a biblical case? Is it sound? Is it consistent? These these questions are increasingly debated. And again, there are evangelicals who are raising those issues. Now, from my own point of view, and I can't speak for all, um, but I would say uh, the problem with judgment is not how long you've sinned, but who you've sinned against. I kind of adopt an Anselmian view, kind of borrowing from his view of the atonement, by saying that when we sinned against God, when we sinned, I think we sinned against God in Adam. I hold Adam to be our federal representative. I believe in original sin. I believe that when we committed sin against the triune God, we committed an eternal sin. And apart from redemption in Christ, we suffer eternal wrath, eternal punishment. Now, Hell is a difficult thing, but justice, of course, is. I mean, even in our own society, what do we do with evil people? What do we do with people who slaughter other people or sell children into slavery? This is an evil thing. Um, Hell puts a lot of people off. Eternal conscious punishment puts even Christians off. I would say, however, that uh, the idea that God is going to have a judgment day and he will sort all these things out, and he will make all crooked straws straight, I think is a very good thing. Now, I don't want to face hell, and uh, I know that that is something that Christ provides through his life, death, and resurrection, Uh, but I think the Bible teaches eternal conscious punishment. And I think when you commit a sin against the against God, you commit an eternal sin. So I think it is just. Uh, again, I debated Ed Fudge, and he came away with a very different position. And again, there are evangelicals, some who have even listened to our program, uh, who hold, uh, who are rethinking, uh, you know, the old position on hell. So. I talk about some of that in a couple of my books that relate to that. Okay, number number nine in our 10 points, we're up to number nine, as the old Beatle uh, album, number nine. Um, what the Bible teaches about the future should impact the way we live right now in a powerful way. Let me say that again. What the Bible teaches about the future should impact the way we live our lives right now. And I want to make a couple points that I have in a chapter in Christian Endgame. It happens to be chapter seven. It's entitled The Believer's Blessed Hope. I talk about a few things that should impact us now with regard to our eschatological uh, views. Number one, that we have a our eschatology, the second coming, the promise of the second coming, it gives us a hopeful existence. Again, we've all lived through the pandemic. Um, uh, You know, my family lost uh, people. Uh, Lots of families lost people. Some people uh, have had uh, deep ill effects and some of them don't go away. Uh, We recognize how vulnerable we are we recognize how we can be locked down and our economic future can be reversed. We realize that you know, this life can be very, very difficult. And of course, people in third world countries, uh, they've been living with this their entire life. People in the West have many blessings and uh, sometimes we're not aware of the suffering that many people experience. i I'm contacted on Facebook by people who live in Africa, who live in China, who live in India, and some of them live in Pakistan or uh, Indonesia, and they're Christians in a dominant Islamic country, and they suffer persecution. And I realized, wow, Ken, you're complaining about things, um, and there are a lot of Christians in the world who'd love to take my spot and uh, live in a part of the world where there's uh, safety and where there's plenty of food and water and economic opportunities. But I think our blessed hope gives us a hopeful existence that the people we love, uh, that when they die uh, and they are in the Lord, we we don't grieve as if we have no hope. We believe there is a purpose in the universe um, I have had family members who've struggled with mental health issues. I've spent a lot of time reading, trying to discover how I might help them. Uh, I've read uh, that, you know, having a a worldview that makes sense, that there is hope. Think of Viktor Frankl uh, coming out of Dachau and Auschwitz, a psychiatrist who says what people need in life to overcome the challenges is hope. Well, I think that, I think Christianity gives it. And Joe, if I had one thing to say about the writing of my book entitled God Among Sages, uh, one of the things I learned in writing that book and studying the world's religions is the other religions of the world don't have a lot of hope. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of hope. That's why faith, hope, and love are considered the three theological virtues. We also have comfort and death. We lost Dave Rogstad. I know you uh, suffered the loss of a very close family member of yours. Uh, I have as well. Um, You know, I like to put it in existential terms. If there's no God, there's no life after death, then I'm going to die and it's going to be soon and I'll have to die alone and I'll be dead forever. But The resurrection, which is part of the eschatological purpose, uh, Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. Then he appeared, and I'm going to appear with him because I belong to him. Um, That gives me great comfort, uh, even in death, uh, that the Lord—you know, I, I sometimes tell myself when I'm having a really bad day, How bad can things be if Christ is risen from the dead? Mm -hmm. That is such an important hope. Thirdly, holiness in life. Um, You know, it's very important that we live a godly life. We're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ, not by works. But that saving grace that comes apart from works motivates us to desire holiness and a life of holiness is a life that pleases God. It has many great benefits that is drawn from it. Um, I think scripture clearly teaches that our belief about the, the coming of the Lord should motivate us to live a godly life. Um, I think it also motivates us to action, Joe. We, um, we care about a lot of things. We care about evangelism, care about the Great Commission, missions. Uh, you know, we care about our families. We care about accomplishing uh, our obligations in life. Um, you know, we care about our community. We are mortal creatures. We're temporal creatures. Uh, we need to be about, um, you know, there there is only one life here. I So I think uh, that point nine is a very important one. What the Bible teaches about the future should impact the way we live right now in a powerful manner, not just spectators and predictors of what's going to happen in the future, but to be about the things that are really important. Here's uh, John Jefferson Davis again in his little book, Handbook of Basic Bible Texts. He says, in the New Testament, the second coming is not a topic for speculation, but an incentive for obedient and holy living. I think that's right on target. Uh, eschatology really is an important topic because it makes us look back and look forward and look at the present, the already, not yet. And my 10th point, um, and this probably will sound self-aggrandizing, the church needs a clear, careful, and objective primer that emphasizes careful biblical thinking about a controversial and challenging topic. And I'm I'm going to propose that maybe I've come up with that in Christian endgame, game. Uh, and I'm not really trying to sell books or talk about how smart I am. I like this little primer and I like it for a number of reasons. I, I like it because I think it genuinely educates. It really introduces eschatology. It, it, talks about mere Christian eschatology, it talks about how eschatology should impact your life now. Um, I think it's a different kind of book and uh, it covers these 10 points uh, that we have talked about. And so I I think it's, you know, I think it's very important that you come away from these ideas recognizing that uh, this is a critical part of Christian esch- uh, Christian theology as a as a whole. But sometimes we overemphasize the less important things and fail to recognize the very important things you know that the second coming gives you hope. The second coming makes you realize wow, there really is going to be an eternal conscious punishment. How can I avoid that? I I can avoid that through, the gospel uh, of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. So these are some very important topics. Uh, I'd like to do uh, another program or two where we look a little more carefully at the different millennial positions, look at the weigh their strengths uh, and their potential weaknesses. But there's some really good books uh, out there. Uh, again, I like Christian endgame. I'm glad I wrote it. Uh, it doesn't tell you wh- doesn't tell you what to think. It tries to educate you and allow you to make that decision. But there are some other really good books, and uh, in our future programs, I'm going to look at specific books that advocate uh, for different positions. But um, you know, Millard Erickson has a, a great little introduction to eschatology. Donald Bloch has a book entitled The Last Things. Those are very solid books. And I want to read, uh, Joe, a a passage here. Um, Let me find it in my notes. It's from Bruce Milne, who is, I think, just a very fine theologian. Uh, Wrote a book years ago that had a big influence on me entitled Know the Truth. And I'm hoping I can... Pull that quotation out uh, from him. Yes, I have it right here. Um, He writes this, and I think it's a good way of summarizing our two programs. He says, the center of the Christian hope is Christ himself and his glorious appearing. Division of opinion on the millennium ought never to be permitted to divide those united in their expectation of and love for the Lord Jesus Christ and i say a hearty amen to that uh mm-hmm. i believe in truth um jude says you be, you have to be willing to contend for the truth you need to you need to be tenacious in it never let it go but i also along with that in the best sense of the term want to promote unity among christians and i want to please god by being charitable
0: wonderful great words to end on thank you for those uh words out of uh, Milne's book. And thank you for your 10 points, Ken. I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have as well. In fact, let us know what you think. You can uh, reach out to Ken via Twitter, and that's at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your question or comment here. You can also get Clear Thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. We'll pick it up, as Ken mentioned, with a couple more programs on this topic. So we'll uh, look for you next time. And please pass the link along. Let your friends and neighbors, and loved ones, know about it. Perhaps they're thinking about these very topics right now. This would be a good way to educate the people around you. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.